0: We all know that dating colleagues is not straightforward. The workplace might seem like a great place to meet people, but office romances can lead to awkward moments. Perhaps even more awkward if you and your partner are spies. Your office is actually the UK's top spy agency, and your partner is planning to illegally share classified information with the world. Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from ParCast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of Annie Mashon and David Shaler, the MI5 officers who exposed the failures of the British intelligence services, pitting themselves against the UK government in the process this is a story of secrets and silencing and because many of the details are protected by the official secrets act there are some things we may never know the whole truth about many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Like many couples, Annie Mashon and David Shaler met at work. But unlike most other couples, Annie and David were both spies for the UK government. The pair came from very different backgrounds. Annie had grown up on the quiet island of Guernsey, off the south coast of England, and had studied classics at Cambridge, where she learned French, German, and Russian. David was from a working-class background in Middlesbrough, a post-industrial city in northeast England. He had attended a less prestigious university, where he had been editor of his campus newspaper and took part in campaigns for nuclear disarmament and against apartheid in South Africa. He had never been shy about his beliefs in the rule of law, human rights, and civil liberties. After college, Annie had applied to join the Foreign Office, Britain's equivalent of the U.S. State Department. But her application had caught the eye of a different government branch and she was instead headhunted by the Ministry of Defense. They seemed to think she had what it took to join MI5. Annie had never wanted to be a spy, but now that she had the option, she became hooked on the idea. After a long, intrusive recruitment process in which she was interrogated about her childhood, political leanings, and even her sexuality, she was welcomed on board in 1991, Aged 22. David had never considered being a spy either. At 25, he had responded to a mysterious job posting in the newspaper for what he assumed was a media position. When he realized it was for MI5, he figured his activism would disqualify him. The security services were famously conservative. But to his surprise, he was offered the position soon after Annie although it would be a few months before their paths crossed. Both David and Annie started their MI5 careers in the department called F-Branch, which handled counter-subversion. For the last 40 years, while the Cold War was going on, the branch's main concern had been communism. Target number one had been the Communist Party of Great Britain. But other political activists and left-wing socialists had been watched carefully, too. Which is why the services had become known as overly conservative. But David and Annie had joined the branch at a time of change. The Soviet Union had just crumbled, and the new recruits were told that MI5 was entering a new, more tolerant era. They were no longer focusing on left-wing activists— and they were bringing in new rules to protect human rights and civil liberties. Nobody could be targeted or investigated without good reason. David, especially, was happy to hear this. It was one of the main reasons he decided to join the service. But he soon discovered that while MI5 talked a good game, in practice, it seemed like they weren't ready to let go of their old ways his colleagues were still being asked to trawl through photographs from left-wing protests and demonstrations and collect subscriber lists for radical book clubs. Anyone suspected of so-called subversive sympathies would get a personal file with their actions, activities, and opinions logged. And F Branch could also tap phones and break into houses to collect intelligence— with what seemed to David like little justification. Annie was equally disappointed with the way things were done. She realized that most of the people they were investigating for supposedly subversive views were merely exercising their democratic rights. They weren't terrorists planting bombs or trying to solicit funds from foreign countries or doing anything other than expressing left-wing political ideas. Sometimes they hadn't even done that. In fact, many of the personal files she dealt with were of major public figures, from members of parliament and union leaders to famous musicians and comedians. Some of the politicians MI5 was investigating would go on to become part of Tony Blair's labor government in just a few years. Still, other people were investigated for private matters— MI5 considered being in debt, or being gay, as so-called character defects. People who fell into these categories could be classed as subversive. A black mark was placed on their files. Both Annie and David felt trapped in an organization that was as regressive as ever. And there was nothing they could do about it. MI5 had no workers' union, and when they tried separately to take their concerns to their managers, their worries were quickly dismissed. MI5 wasn't the kind of place where you rocked the boat. Annie and David felt that they had nowhere to turn, and they weren't even allowed to vent their frustrations to friends or family. So they suffered in silence, miserable. Until one day... The pair happened to meet in the department's library. David noticed Annie's long, blonde hair and piercing eyes, while Annie noticed David's thick, dark hair and impressive height. They were immediately drawn to each other and struck up a conversation. They soon realized they worked in the same department, and before they knew it, found themselves opening up about their grievances. It was a relief to find someone else at the agency who was equally horrified by these discoveries. They arranged to meet again, and one date turned into several. Soon, they were falling in love and began to rely on each other for support. In summer 1992, both Annie and David were delighted when they were transferred to T-Branch, a newly created division that was responsible for investigating the Provisional Irish Republican Army, better known as the IRA. Finally, they were working on a real, pressing issue. IRA bombings were a genuine threat to innocent British civilians, unlike phantom communists. Since the 1920s, the London Metropolitan Police Division called Special Branch had been responsible for investigating Irish nationalism, known as republicanism, in British-controlled Northern Ireland. In the 1970s, political conflicts between the pro-British unionists and the anti-British republicans escalated into fierce violence. A major component of the IRA's campaign against the unionists in the UK was a series of bombings in England, This terrorism was intended to force the British out of Northern Ireland for good. As the situation escalated, the British government decided in 1992 that responsibility for investigating IRA terrorism would move from Special Branch to MI5's newly empowered T-Branch. The spies would now, in a way, become more like police officers. David was posted to T2A where he would be investigating and trying to prevent terror bombings in the north of England. Annie was sent to T5E, the Office for Investigating the Logistics of IRA Terrorism. She would be trying to find out how they got their guns and bombs and how they moved them around. But while the couple were initially excited about their new roles, their enthusiasm didn't last long. Investigative police work like this involved being collaborative and quick on your feet. Two things that MI5 was not. The pair felt that decades of leisurely investigations into communist subversion had made MI5's bureaucracy lazy and sluggish, unable to keep up with the speed and secrecy of IRA cells. It didn't help, either, that the police officers in Special Branch were resentful that MI5 had taken this prestigious job away from them. The two agencies essentially competed against one another, refusing to share information, and even using separate agents and informants in the field. Working behind the scenes on intelligence analysis, Annie was frustrated by these delays and internal competitions. She felt that some of these attacks could have been prevented. The IRA targeted property, rather than people, and sent messages before their bombs went off. And yet hundreds of people had been killed or wounded in the blasts. She believed that refusal to share information and move quickly was putting lives at risk. And working out in the field, David saw how these failures played out in real time. In August 1992, he was part of an operation tracking a suspected IRA unit around London. T-Branch had solid intelligence that the unit was planning a large-scale attack in the centre of the capital. It was David's job to write up the situation report on their activities, so he knew every detail of the operation. Surveillance teams had managed to track down a large truck parked in a yard in North London. They believed that the plan was to pack the truck with explosives and blow it up. As a dedicated intelligence agency, MI5 still needed to use the police to conduct more intensive operations and make arrests. So one night that August, David's team ordered a special police squad to enter the yard and find out what was inside the truck. Under cover of darkness, the police team surrounded and scaled the truck and carefully drilled a hole in the roof. Inside, they found more than 300 pounds of homemade explosives and detonators. As they'd feared, the whole truck was one enormous bomb. MI5 and the police decided to use the truck to their advantage. They would watch the yard 24-7, and if anyone approached or touched the truck, the elite anti-terrorist squad would pounce and arrest them. Within just a few days, the surveillance teams saw a man enter the yard, and then another, and another. As they trickled in, David's team recognized them all as suspected IRA members. As the men huddled around the truck, the spies put in a call to the head of the task force. They wanted permission to swoop down and arrest the IRA members. But the head of the task force The man in charge of the elite anti terrorist squad that would make the arrests was nowhere to be found. No one could reach him in his office. His cell phone was switched off, and without his authority, MI5 and the police could not act. Within minutes, the suspected IRA members began to file out of the yard, one by one, just as they had arrived. The last one to leave looked straight at a member of the MI5 surveillance team and gave him a cheeky thumbs up. Then he disappeared into the night. The terrorists had slipped through their fingers, all because of rigid bureaucracy and antiquated systems. When David heard that the IRA group had successfully detonated another truck full of bombs in the city center a few months later, He was sure that their failure to catch the terrorists that August day had emboldened them. The blast had killed one person, injured 44, and resulted in 350 million pounds of damage. He was angrier still just a few weeks afterwards. Another bombing had taken place, and he believed that the glacial speed of MI5's postal service had prevented him receiving evidence in time to stop it. David was livid. This kept happening. And although he complained to his managers again and again, MI5 still wasn't learning from its mistakes. David would soon find out that the IRA failings were the least of his worries. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. By 1994, 25-year-old Annie Mashon and 28-year-old David Shaler were thoroughly frustrated with their jobs at MI5. They had tried to reform the agency from the inside by speaking to their managers, but they hadn't had much luck. There was a small ray of hope, though, when MI5 announced that its priorities were changing once again. For one thing, promising peace talks had been held in Northern Ireland. And by late summer 1994, the IRA had called a ceasefire, promising to stop all terrorist activities until the peace process had finished. Simultaneously, MI5 was shifting more resources toward Libya. Six years earlier, in 1988, Libyan terrorists had blown up Pan Am Flight 103 over the town of Lockerbie, Scotland, killing everyone on board. Additionally, Libyan leader Colonel Muammar Gaddafi had spent the last two decades antagonizing the British government— by openly funding and supporting militants around the world. From the IRA in Northern Ireland to militant groups in the Palestinian-occupied territories. In other words, more Libyan terrorism on UK soil was a major concern for MI5. In late 1994, while Annie was kept on IRA analysis, David was transferred from T-branch to G-branch which investigated other terrorism. He was immediately put on the team handling Libya. Because Libya was a foreign power, the mission involved working closely with MI6, the British organization that deals with threats outside the UK. MI5 focuses solely on issues within the country. David's counterpart at the Foreign Intelligence Service was a man named David Watson, but it soon became clear that the two had very different ideas about preventing Libyan terrorism. One day in summer 1995, Watson called David. He had an operation that needed to be discussed. It was so secret that they couldn't talk about it over the phone, not even the intelligence service's secure lines. They would have to meet in person. David claims that when they met... Watson revealed that a senior member of military intelligence in Libya had walked into the British embassy asking to meet the resident MI6 officer. This Libyan official had then asked MI6 for money. In return, he said he would plan a coup d'etat against Gaddafi. David assumed that MI6 had refused the offer right off the bat. It sounded like something out of an outlandish spy movie, not a realistic operation. The only reason MI6 would do it would be to get revenge on Gaddafi for the Lockerbie bombing. It wasn't sound foreign policy. But according to David, Watson said they were seriously considering it. He wanted David to look into this mysterious Libyan to confirm that he was who he said he was. And so over the next few weeks, David did his due diligence, all the while feeling deeply uncomfortable. He discovered that the Libyan had been telling the truth. He was indeed a member of military intelligence. But David claims he also found out some more worrying information about him. The man was a secret member of a militant cell called the Islamic Fighting Group, which had extremely close ties to Osama bin Laden's extremist al-Qaeda network. At the time, al-Qaeda was still a fairly small and insignificant group, but they were already known as dangerous militants. The Islamic fighting group and al-Qaeda had their own reasons to topple Gaddafi. They didn't like him because he was a secular nationalist, not an Islamist, and they wanted to use MI6's money to get rid of him, and establish an Islamic state. David claims he passed on this information to Watson, his MI6 colleague, and was shocked to learn that they were still happy to pay the money, despite this revelation. He says that soon after, he saw an official MI6 report that was basically a shopping list for the coup plotters. Guns, explosives, jeeps, tents, and other supplies. Then he heard that MI5 was sending money over, too. A few months later, in March 1996, an intelligence report came in. A bomb had exploded under one of the cars in Gaddafi's motorcade. A brief gunfight ensued. Several of Gaddafi's bodyguards and a number of bystanders were killed. But Gaddafi himself survived. It seemed that the assassination attempt had failed but innocent civilians had been killed in the process. David had filled Annie in on the story at every turn, and she was disgusted. Just knowing about the alleged conspiracy made her feel physically sick. Both she and David had signed up as spies to try and stop terrorism, not support it. Their anger at the UK government had been growing for years. And for David especially, this assassination plot was the final straw. He felt that the British people had a right to know what he believed their government was doing. He told Annie he wanted to go public with this information. To tell the world about the rampant phone tapping, the IRA failings, and the Gaddafi plot. Annie was the more cautious of the pair. She knew that if they came forward, it would change their lives irrevocably. The intelligence agencies would come after them both, would try to defame and slander them, even target their friends and family. And above all, there was the risk of prosecution. When they had joined MI5, they had both signed the Official Secrets Act. This prohibited intelligence officers from disclosing any sensitive information about their work, even after they left the service. Breaching the Official Secrets Act could land them both in prison for a very long time. But David argued that the risk was worth it. The threats the intelligence services were presenting to national security, democracy, and human rights were so much greater than their own personal well-being. So Annie and David came up with a strategy that had two roots. David would meet with journalists from the major newspapers, He would give them documents, information, and crucial context, so that they could report the stories in full. At the same time, he would formally write to the new ministers in government, asking them to investigate the intelligence agencies. On the one hand, the public would know what their spies were doing behind closed doors, and on the other, the politicians would be obliged to look into David's allegations the couple made the deliberate decision that only David would formally come forward. Annie would remain in the background. If David was arrested and put on trial, then Annie would still be free to travel, to meet with lawyers, to drum up support for their case. But first, before they could do anything else, they had to quit their jobs. And so, on September 27, 1996, David Shaler and Annie Mashon walked out of MI5 for the last time. They told their colleagues they were headed for jobs as management consultants in the private sector, away from the secret world of spies, agents, conspiracies, bombs, and assassinations. Finally, out of the office, David and Annie began the slow and careful process of trying to find a journalist they could trust. Someone who could not only understand the importance of the allegations, but who could also keep it all secret until the moment the story hit the stands. In the end, it took the couple almost a year to find the right person. After many hushed phone calls and casual but covert meetings in pubs across London, David thought he'd found a winner. A freelance journalist named Mark Hollingsworth. He had a special interest in the intelligence services and had previously written about MI5's outdated vetting behavior. He clearly wasn't afraid of upsetting them. When Mark heard David's information, he was immediately all in. He approached the editors of the Mail on Sunday newspaper and pitched them his big scoop. They were impressed right away and agreed to publish a huge expose. For David and Annie, this was the moment they'd been waiting for the public would know what they had for years. And they hoped MI5 would finally be forced to change for the better. The expose in the Mail on Sunday was supposed to be the first of many. The Mail wanted to drip-feed the information to the public over several days. They were starting with the revelation that MI5 was continuing to tap the phone of Peter Mandelson, a prominent member of the Labour Party who had been in charge of the party's successful campaign in the election just a few months earlier. The story also included other details about how MI5 was spying on innocent journalists, about how other prominent politicians had been bugged or surveilled, and about the culture of binge drinking in the offices of the agency. The piece was due to be released on August 24, 1997. Then more articles would be published in the following days. When the newspaper finally hit the stands, the news caused a ripple around Britain. Peter Mandelson was a well-known member of Parliament. The fact that a government department appeared to be spying on one of their leaders was almost unbelievable. Annie and David were pleased that the public were as appalled by the revelation as they had been but they were also waiting with bated breath to see what the fallout of David's actions would be for them. David had been named in the article as the source of information, which put him right in the crosshairs of MI5. It wasn't long before the attack began, and it was worse than they could have imagined. The smear campaign came first. Spies and civil servants briefed the press to undermine David's credibility. They said he was too junior to know what he was talking about, that he was disgruntled and wanted revenge, that he was a maverick who couldn't be trusted, that he was a Walter Mitty character, a serial fantasist with too vivid an imagination. And then came the legal threats. When the editors at the Mail on Sunday refused to say what they were going to publish next, citing free speech, the government went to a judge and and got them to issue a gagging order. The paper could not legally publish anything else that David told them about. In fact, no newspaper could. With one word from a judge, it became illegal for anyone to report on David's revelations. David and Annie quickly realized that the government was coming down hard on them. They were at serious risk of being arrested, and everywhere they went, they felt like they were being watched. Stress levels rising. The couple decided to take the drastic decision to leave the country. And so, late one Saturday night, they took the last flight out of Heathrow to Amsterdam. And they were just in time. Behind them, the authorities were sending in the heavies. Their London apartment was raided by police. They left the place a wreck, destroying furniture, ripping up the carpet even breaking apart their bath, anything that could be considered sensitive was hauled away. Their bedsheets, their underwear, their love letters to each other. The couple's lawyers broke the news to them and told them that it was likely that the minute they returned to Britain, they would be charged with breaching the Official Secrets Act. David and Annie were devastated. For the next month, they traveled around Europe, doing their best not to be seen. They only had their passports, a couple of bags of their belongings, a dwindling supply of money, and no guarantee that their incendiary information would ever see the light of day. The lowest point came when they learned that, back home, the police had started going after their friends and family, too, showing up at their workplaces talking about security irregularities. This hit Annie the hardest. She had followed her partner into this drama and respected his integrity, but it was hard to focus on that when she was causing her loved ones so much anguish and facing a lifetime in exile. The couple realized that hiding out in Paris, in Barcelona, in Amsterdam, wasn't enough. They needed to wipe themselves off the map completely. The pair traveled to central France, to an area called La Souterraine. There, they rented an isolated farmhouse. It was the perfect hideaway, miles from the nearest shop or train station, or sign of civilization. At first, they flinched at every passing car, at every knock on the door. But as the weeks passed, they realized that they were safe. No one knew their location. For the next 10 months, they lived a quiet life and learned to enjoy the peace. But for David, once the fear had disappeared, it was replaced with restlessness. Despite being scared for their lives and livelihoods, David was still determined to get the rest of their story out. He still wanted to go ahead with revealing the details of the MI6 plot to use al-Qaeda terrorists to assassinate Colonel Gaddafi. And Annie knew that he wouldn't be talked out of it. And so, in the summer of 1998, after a year of being on the run, the couple raised their heads above the parapet once again and carefully re-established contact with the outside world. First, David got back in touch with the editors of the Mail on Sunday. The news outlet was keen to run the story, but there was a problem there was still a gagging order hanging over them. In order to publish the story, the paper would have to submit it to the government first for vetting, to supposedly make sure that it didn't damage national security. Going ahead would mean that the couple were taking a huge risk. They would essentially be offering themselves up to the government, but they decided that it was worth it. The Mail on Sunday arranged to meet them in Paris, to put the story together. It was July, and uncomfortably hot. In their airless hotel room, David worked into the night, typing up his formal submissions to the government. He argued that what he was telling the media was perfectly legal, in the public interest, and was not a breach of national security. When it was ready, he sent it off. And he received a response sooner than he had expected. The next day, he was in the lounge of his hotel, watching his beloved Middlesbrough football club on satellite TV, when suddenly, members of DST, the French equivalent of MI5, appeared in front of him. He was being arrested. The British government had formally requested his extradition from France. Annie, who was upstairs in their room only learned what had happened when the agents knocked on her door, asking for David's passport. Her greatest fear was becoming reality. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. David was held by the French police for two days before he was allowed to see a lawyer. Then he was transferred to the notorious La Santé prison. He was not allowed to see visitors, not even Annie. Months passed, and although Annie threw herself into defending her partner, she was desperately lonely without him. It was the couple's toughest moment yet. They knew that if David was extradited back to the U.K., he could be locked up for years. Eventually, after four months of incarceration, the French court reached a decision. To Annie's delight, they ruled that David's actions had been politically motivated. He was a legitimate whistleblower, not a criminal. Therefore, they wouldn't send him back to Britain. He was free to go. When David finally walked out, Annie was there to greet him. He told her that the worst thing about being in prison wasn't the injustice of the whole thing or the tedium of life inside. It was not being able to hold and kiss Annie. The pair were desperate to get back to some form of normality after the nightmare they had just been through. But it was clear that drama of some kind or other would always be right around the corner. Just a few days after he was released from jail, David was approached by a group of Libyans who wanted to offer David millions and millions of dollars to give all of his information to them. David, of course, turned them down flat, then immediately alerted the British police. Back in their French home, the ever-tenacious David restarted his campaign to change MI5. He and Annie repeatedly wrote letters And lobbied government ministers to formally investigate their knowledge of the failings and crimes. But no one did. Even though the same ministers were supposed to be the watchdogs of the spy agencies, not one of them looked into David and Annie's claims and evidence about intelligence failures, about spying on politicians, about the plot to assassinate Colonel Gaddafi. Months passed and they made little progress. By this time, in 1999, the couple were missing their home country terribly. They wanted to see their family and friends and revisit their old neighborhoods. Annie especially craved the comfort of home. But returning home meant making a huge sacrifice. David would have to face the music and fight his case in court. If he won... He might see real change in MI5. And after all, the French court had looked favorably on him. But if he lost, he knew he would be locked up once again away from Annie, for who knows how long. It was a huge gamble. But in the end, he chose to take the risk. The couple returned to the UK in 2000, and David was immediately arrested and charged with three breaches of the Official Secrets Act. From the outset, the trial process was like something out of a dystopian novel. All of the usual rights and privileges that are owed to a defendant were thrown out the window. David was accused of showing blinkered arrogance, and it was suggested that he'd only leaked documents to the press in an attempt to spark a career for himself in journalism something which he vehemently denied. In a long series of pre-trial hearings, the High Court, the Court of Appeals, and the House of Lords all ruled that there was no exemption for whistleblowers in the Official Secrets Act. Anyone who had ever signed the Official Secrets Act was bound for life to never reveal anything they knew. No matter what the spy agencies did, no matter how terrible their actions, There was no legal route for anyone to reveal their misdeeds. The trial judge also ruled that David had to reveal his defense strategy and all the evidence he was using before the trial even took place. He was at a huge disadvantage. And then there were the government ministers who signed what were called public interest immunity certificates. These meant that any information at all that concerned the intelligence services was not allowed to be heard in open court. So David was not even able to use the trial as an opportunity to spread his complaints against the government. On top of that, the media who were covering the trial were almost completely gagged. The judge could tell the reporters to leave the courtroom at any point meaning they missed important context and evidence in the hearings. In order to be found guilty of breaching the Official Secrets Act, the only thing the prosecution needed to do was prove that David had passed information to the mail on Sunday. And David never denied that. In fact, it was the thing he was most proud of. In one last blow, the judge told the jury before their deliberations that In fact, they were not deciding a verdict. Legally, they had to find David guilty. And on the 3rd of November, 2002, that is exactly what happened. Luckily for David, the judge was lenient on him in terms of sentencing. And while he was sentenced to six months in prison, in the end, he served less than two months But the whole experience had taken its toll on him. Over the next few years, Annie and David tried to continue their fight. They attempted to clear David's name, campaign for the freedom of information, and protest against the chains of the Official Secrets Act. All to no avail. For both David and Annie, it was intensely frustrating. And over time, despite their love for one another the pair began to drift apart. These days, they are no longer together. Annie believes that after all the pressure placed on David by the British government and the spooks, after the time he spent in high-security prison away from family and friends and loved ones, everything became too much for David. In the end, according to Annie, he suffered a mental breakdown. He has since become outspoken on several controversial conspiracy theories and has expressed doubts about the U.S. government's explanation of the 9-11 attacks. Later in life, he turned to religion. He now runs a small, unconventional church organization and claims to be the reincarnation of Christ. As for Annie, she is now a public speaker, focusing on freedom of the press and the integrity of the intelligence forces. She continues to share the story of her time on the run with her beloved David. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Annie Mashon and David Shaler, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jane Dixon's newspaper article for The Independent, Point of No Return, and Annie Mashon's book Spies, Lies, and Whistleblowers extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for Parcast. Produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by James Robbins. Script edited by Kate Thorman. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez.